section thirteen of beacon lights of history volume eleven american founders by john lord this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by k hand john adams part one seventeen thirty five to eighteen twenty six constructive statesmanship the adams family on the whole the most illustrious in new england if we take into view the ability the patriotism and the high offices which it has held from the revolutionary period cannot be called of patrician descent neither can it be viewed as peculiarly plebeian the founder was a small farmer in the town of braintree of the massachusetts colony as far back as sixteen thirty six whose whole property did not amount to one hundred pounds his immediate descendants were famous and sturdy puritans characterized by their thrift and force of character the father of john adams who died in seventeen sixty one had an estate amounting to nearly fifteen hundred pounds and could afford to give a college education at harvard to his eldest son john who was graduated in seventeen fifty five at the age of twenty with the reputation of being a good scholar but by no means distinguished in his class of twenty-four members he cared more for rural sports than for books following the custom of farmers sons on leaving college he kept a school at worcester before he began his professional studies his parents wished him to become a minister but he had no taste for theology and selected the profession of law at that period there were few eminent lawyers in new england nor was there much need of them their main business being the collection of debts they were scarcely politicians since few political questions were agitated outside of parish disputes nor had lawyers opportunities of making fortunes when there were no merchant princes no grinding monopolies or large corporations and no great interest outside of agricultural life when riches were about equally distributed among farmers mechanics sailors and small traders young men contemplating a profession generally studied privately with those who were prominent in their respective callings for two or three years after leaving college and were easily admitted to the bar or obtained a license to preach with little expectation of ever becoming rich except by parsimonious saving with our modern views life in the colonial times naturally seems to have been dull and monotonous with few amusements and almost no travel no art not many luxuries and the utter absence of what are called modern improvements but if life at that time is more closely scrutinized we find in it all the elements of ordinary pleasure the same family ties the same loves and wassellings the same convivial circles the same aspirations for distinction as in more favored civilizations if luxuries were limited people lived in comfortable houses sat around their big wood fires kept up at small cost and had all the necessities of life warm clothing even if spun and woven and dyed at home linen in abundance fresh meat at most seasons of the year with the unstinted products of the farm at all seasons and even tea and coffee wines and spirits at moderate cost so that the new englanders of the eighteenth century could look back with complacency and gratitude on the days when the pilgrim fathers first landed and settled in the dreary wilderness feeling that the lines had fallen to them in pleasant places and yet be unmindful that even the original settlers with all their discomforts and dangers and privations enjoyed that inward peace and lofty spiritual life in comparison with which all material luxuries are transient and worthless it is only the divine certitudes which can exist under any external circumstances that are of much account in our estimate of human happiness 
and it is these which ordinarily escape the attention of historians when they paint the condition of society our admiration and our pity are alike wasted when we turn our eyes to the outward condition of our rural ancestors so long as we have reason to believe that their souls were jubilant with the benedictions of heaven and this joy of theirs is especially noticeable when they are surrounded with perils and hardships such was the state of society when john adams appeared on the political stage there were but few rich men in new england like john hancock and john langdon both merchants and not many who were very poor the population consisted generally of well-to-do farmers shopkeepers mechanics and fishermen with a sprinkling of lawyers and doctors and ministers most of whom were compelled to practice the severest economy and all of whom were tolerably educated and familiar with the principles on which their rights and liberties rested usually they were law-abiding liberty-loving citizens with a profound veneration for religious institutions and contentment with their lot there was no hankering for privileges or luxuries which were never enjoyed and of which they never heard as we read the histories of cities or states in antiquity or in modern times we are struck with their similarity in all ages and countries in everything which pertains to domestic pleasures to religious life to ordinary passions and interests and the joys and sorrows of the soul homer and horace chaucer and shakespeare dwell on the same things and appeal to the same sentiments so john adams the orator worked on the same material substantially that our orators and statesmen do at the present day and that all future orators will work upon to the end of time on the passions the interests and the aspirations which are eternally the same unless kept down by grinding despotism or besotted ignorance as in egypt or medieval europe and even then the voice of humanity finds entrance to the heart and soul all men said rousseau are born equal and both adams and jefferson built up their system of government upon this equality of rights if not of condition and defended it by an appeal to human consciousness the same in all ages and countries in regard to these elemental rights we are no more enlightened now than our fathers were a hundred years ago except as they were involved in the question of negro slavery when therefore adams began his career as a political orator it was of no consequence whether men were rich or poor or whether the country was advanced or backward in material civilization he spoke to the heart and the soul of man as garrison and sumner and lincoln spoke on other issues but involving the same established principles little could john adams have divined his own future influence and fame when as a boy on his father's farm in braintree he toiled in rural and commonplace drudgeries or when he was an undistinguished student at harvard or a schoolmaster in a country village it was not until political agitations aroused the public mind that a new field was open to him congenial to his genius still even when he boarded with his father a sturdy puritan at the time he began the practice of the law at the age of twenty-three he had his aspirations writes he in his diary chores chat tobacco apples tea steal away my time but i am resolved to translate justinian and yet on his first legal writ he made a failure for lack of concentrated effort my thoughts he said are roving from girls to friends from friends to court and from court to greece and rome showing that enthusiastic versatile temperament which then and afterwards characterized him not long after that he had given up justinian you may get more by studying town meetings and training days he writes popularity is the way to gain and figure these extracts give no indication of legal ambition 
but in 1761 the political horizon was overcast. There were difficulties with Great Britain. James Otis had made a great speech, which Adams heard, on what were called writs of assistance, giving power to the English officers of customs in the colony to enter houses and stores to search for smuggled goods. This remarkable speech made a deep impression on the young lawyer, and kindled fires which were never extinguished. He saw injustice and a violation of the rights of English subjects, as all the colonists acknowledged themselves to be, and he revolted from injustice and tyranny. This was the turning point of his life. He became a patriot and politician. This, however, was without neglecting his law business, which soon grew upon his hands, for he could make a speech and address juries. Eloquence was his gift. He was a born orator, like Patrick Henry. In 1765, Parliament passed the Stamp Act, which produced great agitation in New England, and Adams was fired with the prevailing indignation. His whole soul went forth in angry protest. He argued its injustice before Governor Bernard, who, however, was resolved to execute it as the law. Adams was equally resolved to prevent its execution, and appealed to the people in burning words of wrath. Chief Justice Hutchinson sided with the governor and prevented the opening of the courts and all business transactions without stamps. This decision crippled business, and there was great distress on account of it, but Adams cared less for the injury to people's pockets than for the violation of rights. Taxation without representation. And in his voice and that of other impassioned orators, this phrase became the keynote of the revolution. English taxation of the colonies was not oppressive, but was felt to be unjust and unconstitutional, an entering wedge to future exactions, to which the people were resolved not to submit. They had no idea of separation from England, but like John Hampton, they would resist an unlawful tax, no matter what the consequences. Fortunately, these consequences were not then foreseen. The opposition of the colonies to taxation without their own consent was a pure outburst of that spirit of liberty which was born in German forests, and in England grew into Magna Carta, and ripened into the English Revolution. It was a turbulent popular protest. That was all at first, and John Adams fanned the discontent with his cousin Samuel Adams, a greater agitator even than he, resembling Wendell Phillips in his acrimony, boldness, and power of denunciation. The country was aroused from end to end. The Sons of Liberty Societies of Massachusetts spread to Maryland. The Virginians boldly passed declarations of rights. The merchants of New York, Philadelphia, and Boston resolved to import no English goods, and nine of the colonies sent delegates to a protesting convention in New York. In 1766 the Stamp Act was repealed because it could not be enforced, but Parliament refused to concede its right of taxation, and there was a prospect of more trouble. John Adams soon passed to the front rank of the Patriotic Party in Massachusetts. He was eloquent and he was honest. His popularity in Massachusetts Bay was nearly equal to that of Patrick Henry in Virginia, who was even more vehement. The Tories looked upon Adams pretty much as the descendants of the old Federalists looked upon William Lloyd Garrison when he began the anti-slavery agitation, as a dangerous man, a fanatical reformer. The presence of such a leader was now needed in Boston, and in 1768 Adams removed to that excitable town, which was always ready to adopt progressive views. Soon after, two British regiments landed in the town and occupied the public buildings with the view of overawing and restraining the citizens, especially in the enforcement of customs duties on certain imported articles. This was a new and worse outrage, but no collision took place between the troops and the people till the memorable Boston Massacre on the 5th of March, 1770. 
when several people were killed and wounded, which increased the popular indignation. It now looked as if the English government intended to treat the Bostonians as rebels, to coerce them by armed men, to frighten them into submission to all its unwise measures. What a fortunate thing was that infatuation on the part of English ministers! The independence of the colonies might have been delayed for a half a century but for the stupidity and obstinacy of George the Third and his advisers. By this time, John Adams began to see the logical issue of English persistency in taxation. He saw that it would lead to war, and he trembled in view of the tremendous consequences of a war with the mother country, from which the colonies had not yet sought a separation. Adams was now not only in the front rank of the patriotic party, a leader of the people, but had reached eminence as a lawyer. He was at the head of the Massachusetts bar. In addition, he had become a member of the legislature, second to no one in influence. But his arduous labors told upon his health, and he removed to Braintree, where he lived for some months, riding into Boston every day. With restored health from outdoor exercise, he returned again to Boston in 1772, purchased a house in Queen Street, opposite the courthouse, and renewed his law business, now grown so large that he resigned his seat in the legislature. Politics, however, absorbed his soul, and stirring times were at hand. In every seaport, Charleston, Annapolis, Philadelphia, New York, Boston, the people were refusing to receive the newly taxed tea. On the 17th of December, 1773, three shiploads of tea were destroyed in Boston Harbor by a number of men dressed as Indians. Adams approved of this bold and defiant act, sure to complicate the relations with Great Britain. In his heart, Adams now desired this, as tending to bring about the independence of the colonies. He believed that the Americans, after ten years of agitation, were strong enough to fight. He wanted no further conciliation. But he did not, as yet, openly declare his views. In 1774, General Gage was placed at the head of the British military force in Boston, and the port was closed. The legislature, overawed by the troops, removed to Salem, and then chose five men as delegates to the General Congress about to assemble in Philadelphia. John Adams was one of these delegates, and associated with him were Samuel Adams, Thomas Cushing, James Bowden, and Robert Treat Payne. All historians unite in their praises of this memorable assembly, as composed of the picked men of the country. At the meeting of this Congress began the career of John Adams as a statesman. Until then he had been a mere politician, but honest, bold, and talented, in abilities second to no one in the country, ranking alone with Jefferson in general influence, certainly the foremost man in Massachusetts. But it was the vehemence of his patriotism and his inspiring eloquence which brought Adams to the front, rather than his legal reputation. He was not universally admired or loved. He had no tact. His temper was irascible, jealous, and impatient. His manners were cold, like those of all his descendants, and his vanity was inordinate. Every biographer has admitted his egotism and jealousy even of Franklin and Washington. Everybody had confidence in his honesty, his integrity, his private virtues, his abilities, and patriotism. These exalted traits were no more doubted than the same in Washington. But if he had more brain power than Washington, he had not that great leader's prudence, nor good sense, nor patience, nor self-command, nor unerring instinct in judging men and power of guiding them. One reason, perhaps, why Adams was not so conciliatory as Jefferson was inclined to be toward England was that he had gone too far to be pardoned. He was the most outspoken and violent of all the early leaders of rebellion, except his cousin Samuel Adams. He was detested by royal governors and the English government, but his ardent temperament and his profound convictions furnish a better reason for his course. 
all the popular leaders were of course alive to the probable personal consequences if their cause should not succeed but fear of personal consequences was the feeblest of their motives in persistent efforts for independence they were inspired by a loftier sentiment than that even an exalted patriotism it burned in every speech they made and in every conversation in which they took part if they had not the spirit of martyrdom they had the spirit of self-devotion to a noble cause they saw clearly enough the sacrifices they would be required to make and the calamities which would overwhelm the land but these were nothing to the triumph of their cause of this final triumph none of the great leaders of the revolution doubted they felt the impossibility of subduing a nation determined to be free by such forces as england could send across the ocean battles might be lost like those of william the silent but if the dutch could overflow their dikes the americans as a last resort could seek shelter in their forests the americans were surely not behind the dutch in the capacity of suffering although to my mind their cause was not so precious as that of the hollanders who had not only to fight against overwhelming forces but to preserve religious as well as civil liberties the dutch fought for religion and self-preservation the americans to resist a tax which nearly all england thought it had a right to impose and which was by no means burdensome a mooted question in the highest courts of law at bottom however it was not so much to resist a tax as to gain national independence that the americans fought it was the anglo-saxon love of self-government and who could blame them for resisting foreign claims to the boundless territories and undeveloped resources of the great country in which they had settled forever the real motive of the enlightened statesmen of the day was to make the colonies free from english legislation english armies and english governors that they might develop their civilization in their own way the people whom they led may have justly feared the suppression of their rights and liberties but far-sighted statesmen had also other ends in view not to be talked about in town meetings or even legislative halls as abraham of old cast his inspired vision down the vista of ages and saw his seed multiplying like the sands of the sea and all the countries and nations of the world gradually blessed by the fulfillment of the promise made to him so the founders of our republic looked beyond the transient sufferings and miseries of a conflict with their mother country to the unbounded resources which were sure to be developed on every river and in every valley of the vast wilderness yet to be explored and to the teeming populations which were to arise and to be blessed by the enjoyment of those precious privileges and rights for which they were about to take up the sword they may not have anticipated so rapid a progress in agriculture in wealth in manufactures in science in literature and art as has taken place within one hundred years to the astonishment and admiration of all mankind but they saw that american progress would be steady incalculable immeasurable unchecked and ever advancing until their infant country should number more favored people than any nation which history records unconquerable by any foreign power and never to pass away except through the prevalence of such vices as destroyed the old roman world with this encouragement statesmen like franklin washington adams jefferson hamilton were ready to risk everything and make any sacrifice to bring about the triumph of their cause a cause infinitely greater than that which was advocated by pitt or fought for by wellington their eyes rested on the future of america and the great men who were yet to be born they well could say in the language of an orator more eloquent than any of them as he stood on plymouth rock in eighteen twenty advance then ye future generations we would hail you as you rise in your long succession to fill the places which we now fill we bid you welcome to the healthy skies and the verdant fields of new england 
we greet your accession to the great inheritance which we have enjoyed we welcome you to the blessings of good government and religious liberty we welcome you to the treasures of science and the delights of learning we welcome you to the transcendent sweets of domestic life to the happiness of kindred and parents and children we welcome you to the immeasurable blessings of rational existence the immortal hope of christianity and the light of everlasting truth john adams whose worth and services daniel webster six years after uttering those words pointed out and Fanuel hall when the old statesman died was probably the most influential member of the continental congress after washington since he was its greatest orator and its most impassioned character he led the assembly as henry clay afterwards led the senate and canning led the house of commons by that inspired logic which few could resist jefferson spoke of him as the colossus of debate it is the fashion in these prosaic times to undervalue congressional and parliamentary eloquence as a vain oratorical display but it is this which has given power to the greatest leaders of mankind in all free governments as illustrated by the career of such men as demosthenes pericles cicero chatham fox mirabeau webster and clay and it is rarely called out except in great national crises amid the storms of passion and agitating ideas jefferson affected to sneer at it as exhibited by patrick henry but take away eloquence from his own writings and they would be commonplace all productions of the human intellect are soon forgotten unless infused with sentiments which reach the heart or excite attention by vividness of description or the brilliancy which comes from art or imagination or passion who reads a prosaic novel or a history of dry details if ever so accurate how few can listen with interest to a speech of statistical information if ever so useful unless illuminated by the oratorical genius of a gladstone true eloquence is a gift as rare as poetry an inspiration allied with genius an electrical power without which few people can be roused either to reflection or action this electrical power both the adamses had as remarkably as whitfield or beecher no one can tell exactly what it is whether it is physical or spiritual or intellectual but certain it is that a speaker will not be listened to without it either in a legislative hall or in the pulpit or on the platform and hence eloquence wherever displayed is really a great power and will remain so to the end of time end of section thirteen